The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Remain standing and turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Continue making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 26, looking at the first 16 verses this morning, really focusing on uh, verses 3 through 16. This is on page 831 if you're using the Pew Bible. But let's worship the Lord by giving careful attention to this, the public reading of his word. Matthew chapter 26, and beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's seek his help as we consider his word today. Let's pray. Indeed, what we have sung, O Lord, is so true. The grass withers and the flower falls, but it's your word, O Lord, that endures forever and ever. And so we come to you pleading with you, O God, that in your grace and mercy, you would come to us and bless us as we receive it. Cause your word to be for us a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, showing us our Savior and guiding us, O Lord God, by your Spirit on the path to eternal life in him. We ask for this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, why had Jesus come to Jerusalem? What, what had he come to do there? Children, why did Jesus come into this world? What did he come to do? We, we've seen that he's done many, many wonderful things. We, we have uh, seen the way he has uh, uh, taught. He has confounded the religious leaders with his wisdom and his amazing teaching. But he'd not come to Jerusalem to do that, not primarily, not ultimately, He'd not simply uh, come to Jerusalem to be there with the disciples while they admired the beauty of the temple buildings and teach them or uh, about its imminent destruction and the coming to the end, the coming, the coming of the old covenant to an end. Jesus has done that. 
He's not come simply to teach about the end and when he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead, uh, not simply to, to teach them about living wisely and faithfully in anticipation of that great day. Jesus has come. Jesus has done all those things. He's taught them. He's taught us all of those wonderful things. But the primary reason Jesus has come is to give his life. He's come to Jerusalem to die. And as we see in our text this morning, we've uh, reached that stage where the, the verses show us um, this this transition now. He begins preparing his disciples for his death. You can see in the first three verses that we see that he's finished his teaching, he's finished saying these things, and he informs, really informs the disciples of the redemptive historical context in which he will die. This is the first time Matthew mentions that Jesus was to die at the time of the Passover, that will resume in the verses that follow our text this morning. The Passover theme then sort of frames the section on which we are really focusing this morning, verses 3 through 16. And these verses, verses 3 through 16 here, are really similar to what we see in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14, that Matthew introduces the, the events of Jesus' death similarly to the way that Mark does. That is, he does so be, by way of uh, presenting a contrast between, let's say, two categories of individuals. So on the one hand, we have Judas and the religious leaders. These ones hate Jesus. These ones oppose Jesus, but they're contrasted with this woman who loves Jesus. She loves him with a beautiful love. And I'd say by way of application this morning, dear Christian, learn from this woman we see in our text. Be like this woman. This is a contrast between the ways in which these two opposing parties participate in the event of Christ's death. I think we can say that it's a contrast between what their contrasting actions teach us about the event of Jesus' death two contrasting perspectives from which to view Jesus' death. Children, Jesus came to Jerusalem to die. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? The death of Jesus, bad or good? Well, it's both, right? I mean, on the one hand, we'd have to say this was the worst thing ever, the most horrendous evil that ever took place. And yet we see such beauty, such goodness. God was doing something wonderful here. Horrendously ugly evil and yet marvelous goodness and beauty. We see that in our text and that's reflected in our sermon uh, title or, or our message this morning, which is simply this. Amidst the evil plotting of his death, Jesus was beautifully prepared for his burial. That's our message. And I have just two main points this morning. Each will also have two subpoints, as we'll see. But our two main points, or for our two main points, we'll simply consider those two contrasting parties. We'll see on the on the one hand of the plotting of the religious leaders and Judas, and then we'll consider the beautiful act of this woman who prepares Christ's body for burial. So consider first the evil planning of the religious leaders and Judas Iscariot. That's our first point. Our two, for our two subpoints, we'll simply consider the two apart, two parties to this plan. First, the religious leaders, and then secondly, Judas. And again, similar to Mark 
in structure, note that the story of the woman is right at the center of it. She's sort of enclosed, surrounded by the activities of these evil parties. Our text begins with the plotting of the wicked religious leaders, and then it ends with Judas coming to them and agreeing to to deliver Jesus over to them. So note the beginning, verses 3 through 5. We see the chief priests and elders gathered in the, the palace, the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, to stop and think about what was going on here. These, these are the religious leaders. These are the ones who are supposed to be the shepherds of God's people. They should have been leading the sheep in the way of righteousness. As such, they should have recognized the righteousness of Christ. They should have led the people of God to Jesus, recognizing him for, for who he was. Just, just think about all that Jesus has done. This is one who has gone about doing nothing but good, showing forth God's kindness, God's power to bless through acts of love, mercy, kindness, healing the sick. We're reminding that as we we see the center event takes place in the house of Simon the leper, probably one who had been a leper and was healed by Jesus. All this good that Jesus had done, he'd, he'd done good and he had spoken good. And even even in their in response, we've seen in response to their efforts to trap him and accuse him of, of you know get him to say something of for which they could bring an accusation against him. Even in that, he's spoken truth and he has revealed God's wisdom in a way that has astounded all. And so, in all that he has done and all that he has said, he's done nothing but good. Not only not only was there no basis for accusing him, but he'd shown himself in every way to be the son of God. Their response to him should have had them falling on their faces in worship of him. Instead, what do they do? They come against him. Verse 4 tells us they, they plotted together in order to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Interesting that that word stealth can also mean deceit. Well, the idea here is in secret. They, they, they knew they had to arrest him secretly for fear of the crowds, how the people might respond. We know that Jesus had much support among the people for the very reasons I just mentioned. There were, of course, varying motives, uh, uh, you know, in terms of where their heart was and among those who supported Jesus. But many believed that this was truly a man from God. This was a true prophet, and so they rightly feared what the crowds would do if they arrested him. We know that uh, in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, the the population would increase by about fivefold. The normal 50,000 would swell to 250,000 as people would come from all over Palestine pouring into the city for the for the feast. Among them were many supporters of Jesus and many who were indeed from his own region, Galilee, which would have only strengthened a sense of loyalty to him. So we can understand the fear of potentially violent protests, which might broke, break out if they arrest Jesus. We can understand the fear because even in our own modern context, we've seen plenty of protests that have turned violent, violent riots. Of course, 
uh, protests and riots can be very poorly motivated. We would probably all agree that such has been the case with some of the uh, protests that have turned violent as they've taken place in, a, in our own nation in recent history. But how ironic, of course, a, a protest of the arrest of Jesus would have been absolutely justifiable, morally justifiable. And yet we can imagine these religious leaders in their self-deceit convincing themselves that they were the ones standing on the, the, the high moral, the, the moral high ground. We're acting as the religious leaders. We don't want to give occasion for a kind of ungodly, wicked uh, uh, uprising when we arrest this blasphemer. Down deep, they knew the truth. Down do they, they, they knew the truth that they were suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. They were the ones that were acting wickedly. They were the ones who were conspiring against the righteous one, the innocent one, the son of God. What terrible, terrible evil indeed. And yet I suppose the evil becomes even worse when we consider the one who ends up joining hands with them in their plotting. This is our our second sub-point to our first point here, verses 14 through 16. Our text ends with Judas Iscariot. Judas comes to them. Judas helps them solve their dilemma. How to arrest Jesus without stirring up the crowd. Jesus would be able to, to lead them to a secret place where they could take, they could arrest Jesus without any fear of an angry mob. But as we think about the evil, I think we should really note it, note uh, that that question particularly ought to jump out at us, what we see in verse 15. Matthew's gospel is the only gospel that records this particular question which Judas poses to the chief priests. He asks, what will you give me? What will you give me if I deliver, if I deliver him over to you? Just think on this. This is Judas. This is the one who's been with Jesus for everything that he's done. He's witnessed firsthand all of his wonderful acts, all the good that he has done, and to think that his heart was in such a place. What a warning for us this morning, brothers and sisters. We need to hear this warning today. You know, even those who are close to Jesus in the sense of professing friendship with Jesus. We think of the warning that's sought to bring to, to those who are members of Christ's church, those who have experienced his means of grace, at least outwardly. Even we, we are in spiritual danger if we do not heed the warnings of Scripture. Of course, we know that For those who truly belong to Christ, those who are in a state of grace, God preserves us in Christ, but he does so as he moves in us to heed the warnings which come to us. So I think as we consider what happened to Judas, we should consider well well words like what we read in Hebrews 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The writer says, take care. Guard your hearts, be on guard in terms of your own heart, and look to one another as well. It goes on to say, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Judas was hardened by sin's deceitfulness, even though he had witnessed everything Jesus had done. His heart was not right, not truly in a state of grace. 
And so he was willing, willing to betray his Lord and to betray him for what? For money, 30 pieces of silver. We see that they, they paid him the money. And we're told in verse 16 that from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him, to betray Jesus. Awful. And just think about it from the perspective of Jesus himself, as if it was not bad enough that those were, those who were supposed to be the religious leaders were coming against him to think, but to think that his own friend, his own disciple would join his bloodthirsty enemies and turn against him. Could there ever be a more cruel act of betrayal? And so I was thinking about this sin this week, both from both that of the religious leaders as well as Judas, who joins together with him. It called to mind, I'd recently read through the Proverbs, it called to mind what we're told about that those sins which the Lord hates and, call, and counts an abomination. Proverbs 6, verse 16 tells us, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And I think as we hear these things, uh, every one of them is present on the part of the religious leaders and or Judas Iscariot and certainly those whom they employ as they come up, come against Jesus and ultimately they crucify him. Uh, Proverbs 6, 17 continues, haughty eyes. We think of the prideful jealousy which motivated these religious leaders to turn against Jesus. It says a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. Verse 19, a false witness who breathes out lies. And we think about all that. We marvel at the truth that in Christ, God himself was willing to come and become victim to this kind of abominable sin, the sin which God himself hates. All these things would take place as our Lord would wrongly be condemned and crucified. I think even, even the last thing that, that Solomon mentions, one who sows discord among brothers. You know, Israel should have been united around Christ as the Messiah. Instead, division, the religious leaders, turn his own disciple against him, Judas. Judas himself given over to the, the abominable folly of the Proverbs. In fact, one other proverb that I think comes to mind, Proverbs 26, 24 through 26. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. How much deceit filled the heart of Judas. It says, when he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. So yes, the death of Jesus was something horrible, abominable, abominable sin indeed. But in the end, it will not, it would not, and it will not prevail over righteousness. And in this context, it did not, did not prevail. Praise God. It did not prevail over the goodness and the beauty, the, the, the light which continued to shine even amidst the darkness which surrounded it. That brings us to the second thing we see, our second point this morning. Just, just note the beautiful, beautiful act of this woman who came and she prepared Christ's body for burial by his own words. 
And by the way, this, this, this story of this woman, it parallels other gospel accounts. We find Mark chapter 14, I already mentioned, but also Luke chapter 7, John chapter 12. And it's uncertain whether they're all accounting the, given an account of the very same event. Was this the very same woman? I'm not going to get into all of the, uh, the issues involved in that. This might be the sinful woman mentioned in Luke, perhaps not, probably not, I might suggest. It might be uh, Mary, the sister of Martha, as mentioned in John's gospel. We don't know for sure. At any rate, Matthew here, along with Mark, chooses to leave her unnamed, uh, though I do believe Matthew and Mark are recording the, the same incident here. At any rate, we just note again the way her, her story is inserted right into the center of the, the, the story of the religious leaders and Judas in order to draw out the contrast. They are acting in selfishness and hatred. She comes acting in love and devotion. She, 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 uh, they're, they're, Judas agrees to betray. He, he is willing to give Jesus up in order to gain. The woman's doing the opposite, isn't she? In a sense, we might say she's willing to give up anything in order to gain. Not that by her gift she earns Jesus, but this, this speaks to her heart, doesn't it? She's willing to bring her most costly possession. She takes this, this, verse seven, this alabaster flask of very expensive Ointment, just the flask itself was probably considered a, a luxury item, but in it was this rare perfume. We know from Mark's gospel about its value. The flask and perfume together was worth, worth more than an entire year's wages. And we read about how she, she broke open that flask and she poured that perfume over the head of Jesus. As, as with the incident in John chapter 12, probably in the, here also the fragrance would have been so great that it filled the entire house. What an amazing gift this was. But the primary thing we ought to note here is what this communicated about Christ, his value, and the value of what he was about to do. That's our first subpoint to our second point here. This was a testimony a testimony to the value of his death. And by the way, that, that, that's why, of course, the, the objection of the disciples here was, was not a valid objection, right? Oh, this money could have been far better used. Why not sell this and, and give it as a gift to help the poor? No, the testimony of Christ is even more important than gifts given to help the poor, what good would gifts of charity be were it not for Jesus himself, the greatest gift? What good would giving to the poor be were, were, were it not for the gospel, the testimony of what Christ has done? And we see that her gift became part of that testimony, part of that amazing testimony that even amidst all of the evil, God was doing something good. God was doing something beautiful. The death of Jesus was something precious and costly, just like that perfume. Christ himself is the one who would be broken and he would be poured out as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Normally, the bodies of the deceased were anointed after their death, so this was strange here, isn't it? Probably that, that didn't happen to criminals who died dishonorably. There was no honor that would be showed to them. And so perhaps at least, uh, maybe in the mind of this woman, Jesus was 
counted as a criminal. She, she was performing an act which would not otherwise have been performed. Uh, the anointing here might be an allusion to a, to the words of the psalmist, Psalm 45, verse 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. There's the, it's a messianic psalm, the obedience of the Messiah. And it says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your compassion, or your, your companions. Beautiful psalm there describing the, the glory of the, 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 the Messiah king. Perhaps for Matthew, this sort of pre-death anointing is an anointing in anticipation of his glory. Certainly there is glory even in his suffering and his, 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 his uh, exaltation will be the reward of his suffering. It's glorious suffering obedience. And did the woman's understand all these things? I doubt it. I might stop and ponder. What, what really did this woman understand when she, she came and did this to Jesus? Did she really intend to be anointing his body for death? I doubt it. And yet, we can say this, even if this was not the same woman as the sinful woman we read about in Luke chapter 7, surely this is a woman who had some sense that she was a sinner, and that she was a sinner who needed a Savior, and that Jesus himself was that Savior. That's why Jesus was so precious to her. That's why she was willing to pour out upon him even her most costly possession, and yet Again, in truth, the infinite value of, uh, of Christ is seen not in the gift that she gave to him, but in that which she would gain from him. Note that she became forever identified with Jesus. Maybe she didn't have deep understanding into what was going on. She just loved Jesus, and she just came giving to Jesus a great love gift. But the important thing is not her deep understanding about her gift. Really, the important thing is what Jesus did with her gift that he received. I think one writer put it well, what was to, what took place here when he wrote that, that, that death, Jesus' death, seized the woman's gift and transformed it into a memorial. We see in verse 13, that promise of Jesus, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus was saying her gift, her story, the woman herself will, will forever belong to me, be identified with me. She will be part of my story. She was, she was joined to her Savior. Jesus took not just her gift, but Jesus took her and made her to be one with himself forever. This is union with Christ. Children, why did Jesus go to Jerusalem to die? Why did he die? So that we could be joined to him, so that we could be one with him forever and ever, union with Christ Brothers and sisters, that's what God has done for you and for me and for everyone who's truly trusted in him. The Spirit has taken you and united you together with Christ, made you to be one with him, even in his death and his resurrection. You belong to him. You've been given to him, bound to him. You've been poured out, just like that perfume poured out upon his head. It's like your life, my life, 
poured into Jesus, his death and his resurrection. As such, we enjoy all of the benefits which are ours in union with him, the forgiveness of our sins. We are not condemned. We will never be condemned because Jesus ever lives to intercede on our behalf, just as he did for the woman. Note note what he does in verses 8 and 9. She gives this gift, and the disciples are indignant, rebuking her for this. Why this waste? This could have been sold and given to the poor. Note what happens here. They rebuke her. They accuse her. They condemn her. Jesus defends her. Why do you trouble the woman? Verse 10. Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I think we can see that as sort of picture of what Christ does in justifying us. Our sins are forgiven. He clothes us in his righteousness. He takes away the ugliness of our sin and he makes us beautiful in him. But, but perhaps the greater application we re- is in, in recognizing this woman was not committing a sinful act. She was doing something good. And what a reminder that is, as we live in a world that hates Jesus and doesn't value him, they will not be happy with us when we when we serve him, when we do good things in his name. If the disciples didn't treat this woman well, do we expect the world to treat us well and be happy with us for our service of Christ? No, at times they will be indignant with us. And at those times, how will we respond to that persecution? Christ calls you, Christ calls me to be as this woman was even the way we see her in the, the structure of the gospel, surrounded by the, the evil and the darkness. Let your light continue to shine. Even if, even if the world hates you for Christ's sake, remember that the world first hated him, and yet he loves us. His favor rests upon us. And when we give ourselves to trust and obey him, God is doing something beautiful that the world does not recognize it. It's beautiful in God's sight. Be unwavering then in your faith and in your obedience to Christ and let it flow out of a deep conviction of the infinite value of his death. Say with the woman, Lord Jesus, you are precious to me. You are more valuable to me than all the praise I could ever receive from the the people of this world. If the world hates you, count it a joy counted a privilege so to identify with Christ and to participate in his sufferings. Our second sub-point to this last point is that this woman's act was a picture of participation in him. We've already spoken to that by speaking of our union with Christ. But by way of application, brothers and sisters, see this as a call to do the very thing which I mentioned at the beginning, to be like this woman, which is to say, live out your union with Christ. Children, why did Jesus die? Jesus died so that we might live, so that he might live and so that we might live and live unto him. Live out your union with Christ by pouring your life into Christ Let's see this as a challenge to each heart in terms of our own love and devotion. Is Christ precious to you this day? Is his, is, is, is he of infinite value to you? Such, of such infinite value that, that you would gladly pour out to him even your most precious possession. Not talking about putting money in the offering plate only, though that would be a, a legitimate application of this text. 
would it not? Do you love Christ more than you love your money? Does your willingness to give reflect how much you value your Savior? Do you gladly give to the end that, 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 that his name would be proclaimed? Do you gladly give to the end that the entire world might hear the story of what this woman, the story of a woman who found infinite riches in Jesus Christ? Jesus is worthy, worthy of our giving, worthy of our giving, not only our dollars, but the precious oil, precious oil of your own love and devotion to him. He's ever worthy to hear you say, whether it's placing a check in the offering plate or in any act of love and service, Jesus, you are you are, uh, you are more precious to me than anything in this world. You've given yourself to me, and I gladly, gladly, willingly give myself to you for all that I have, all that I am, are yours, Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, to do anything less than that, it really is to walk the path of Judas. Judas, who was a pretender. Judas, who never truly perceived in repentance and faith the value of Christ. Judas, who was willing to sell over his, sell out his Lord for some money. We can praise God this morning that if we belong to Christ, our story is not the story of Judas. Our story is the story of this woman. And so by God's grace, let's, let's, let's follow the example of the woman. Let's give ourselves unto Jesus Christ. Give. I think, I think, uh, the, the famously quoted words of, uh, Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, Judas became the fool, didn't he? But he's no fool, gives what he cannot, cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think those are, are helpful words, not only in, in terms of the call to go forth and serve as missionaries, but in the entire call upon the Christian to serve Christ. Don't be stingy. Don't, don't, don't hold back, brothers. Give everything. Be like this woman. Give yourself wholly to Christ. Serve him lavishly. What are you losing? You're losing nothing and you're gaining everything. Jesus died that we might live in what is life, but to, to be with Christ, to know Christ, to know God through Christ, to serve God by the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't hold back. Serve him. What you gain is infinitely greater than anything you ever lose. And as you do that, as you find your life in Christ that way, God is doing something beautiful, just as this woman did. Serve the Lord. May God give us grace to do so. Praise God. Let's pray.